This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to The Favorites, the podcast from the Action Network. I am Chad Millman. Today, poker has exploded during the corona shutdown, especially online poker. For a lot of us, it takes us back to the full tilt days when becoming a professional poker player was just something you did by logging on and opening an account. Today's guest, Maria Konnikova, has written a brilliant book, not just about poker, but about her deep dive into how poker can teach all of us about observing better, negotiating better, making better day-to-day decisions. No joke, Maria. Uh, the Biggest Bluff, How I Learned to Pay Attention, Master Myself and Win by Maria Konnikova. It's a freaking joy. It's smart. It's funny. It's taking complicated concepts, turning them into something entirely accessible. Nice work on the book, Maria. Thank you so much, Chad. That means a lot. Uh, how did you come to the idea? I initially came to the idea from a very different angle than I think most people come to poker. All the poker players I've encountered over the last several years of playing full time, they were games players when they were growing up. You know, they played chess or Magic the Gathering um, or, or cards and they learned poker from their parents. I grew up in a household where games weren't a thing. You know, we, we read books. Um, that was about it. Um, We didn't even have a deck of cards, I don't think. My grandparents had a deck of cards. We didn't. And so to me, like poker was just this totally foreign thing. Um, I had no idea what it was. I never really gave it much thought. But I became really interested in the idea of luck and the role that luck plays in our lives and whether there was some way that I could learn to tell the difference between the things I controlled and the things that I didn't control. Because it's so easy to conflate the two, right? Especially if you're getting lucky. Like, yeah, you know, everything is great. I'm smart. I'm doing well. You know, life is good. Um, And you just kind of forget you also got really, really lucky. (laughs) And this was something that was on my mind. And so I started reading a lot to try to figure out, okay, well, what's a way into this question? What's what's the book here? Because this is just an idea. It's not a book. And um, eventually someone suggested that I read up on game theory. They said, you know, if you're interested in chance, game theory is a really good framework for, for approaching this. And so I picked up John von Neumann's theory of game. Von Neumann is the father of game theory, and this book is kind of the seminal text. Um, and what I learned very early on in the first pages of the book is that von Neumann was a poker player and that poker is what inspired game theory that he actually like me didn't really care for games. Um, And he thought that chess was actually a pretty bad way to learn decision-making if you wanted to study strategic decision-making in life, because it's a game of perfect information. Everything's out there. You can see the chessboard, you can see all the pieces. And if you give me enough computing power, I'll be able to tell you what the right move is. Theoretically, there is a right move. And what he loved about poker, the reason that poker was the game that actually drew his attention was it was a game of incomplete information. So there's not this chessboard. Instead, there are the cards that I have, but you don't know what they are. 
they're the cards that you have, but I don't know what they are. They're the cards that we see in common, the community cards, the board, and we both know that. And then how do I figure out what you have? How do I infer it based on your actions? And what do you infer from how I'm acting? And how do I make the best decision I can knowing I don't know everything, knowing that there's all this uncertainty and knowing that the cards that are still to come are just a crapshoot. No one, no one knows the what's coming in the deck. And when I read about the game, I thought, oh, this is really interesting. This could be a really good way into the topic of luck to try to figure out the difference between controlling what you can, you know, how you play, um, and the elements that are outside of your control, the deck, the the run out of the cards. And poker is a clean environment. You know, it's not life. It's not noisy. So you can actually have a shot in hell of being able to tell the difference, whereas in life it's just impossible because there's so many things going on. There's so much noise out there. So I thought, I want to do this. Why don't I learn to play poker? Um, why don't I start from scratch? get someone smart to teach me. Um, I got very lucky there and see where it takes me. Take a year, play the game um, and see what I can learn about luck, about myself, about decision-making. And obviously the journey didn't quite play out the way I thought it was going to. And it wasn't a year. It was much longer. Um, I never could have predicted I'd become a professional poker player, but here we are. Right. So, and you touch on, so many buzzwords, and obviously this is a betting audience that listens to this podcast, and and so many buzzwords that are important to people who gamble for a living. And your your grandmother sort of uh, has a great response to how you like when you're proposing that you're going to be playing poker. And so much of this book sort of speaks to so many of the things that people in the gambling community sort of confront every day. But you had something very early on in the book that I thought was a great sentence and I want to read it. It's through poker. I wanted to tame luck, make a difference, even when the deck seemed stacked against me. Like in other words, control, control, control. Like the last part, that's me editorializing, but that is everything a better is looking for. How do I Mm -hmm. manage luck and how do I control circumstances? Like what did you learn about this during the process? I learned that... Yes, there are so many variables that we don't control. Um, We have no control over the cards, how they're going to be dealt, in what order, um, who's going to get which hand. You know, some some rounds, if you've ever played poker, you know that sometimes everyone gets crap cards. Sometimes everyone gets monsters. And it's... There's nothing that you can do about it. But what you can learn is to try to figure out, how do I maximize my informational advantage? Because information is power. If I have more information than you, I'm going to be able to calculate the odds better. I'm going to be able to know exactly how much to bet. I'm going to know how to play this hand better than you. And even if I can get a 1% edge, even if I can get a 2% edge, that's huge. I should use that. I should look to get all the edge that I can and figure out how do I do that? How do I elicit the most information possible? And yes, I know that it's never going to be a hundred percent because those elements of uncertainty are never going to go away. But if you're, you know, at 50% and I'm at 75% um, in terms of our certainty, or if I can figure out how to make myself a little bit more of a favorite, well, that's great. I'm getting in my money well. And yeah, I can't control the run out, so I'm not always going to win. But if I'm placing this bet, if I'm playing this hand, I'm going to do it over and over and over if I know that I'm the odds favorite because eventually I'm going to win. And poker taught me how to do that. 
poker taught me how to look for these those edges. By the way, poker taught me that one percent is a hell of a lot. You know, before before I started playing poker, I was like, oh, that doesn't matter. You know, one percent, one percent's nothing. And I'm like, one percent is huge. Give me the one percent now. Right. <laughs> well, I- that's how that's how betters are. Right. They're always <laughs> scraping for like just that little bit of, bit of an edge. It's why people are knee deep in like looking for every single bit of information they can find. And and in sports betting, it's about speed too, right? Mm-hmm. It's about understanding that information yep. before anybody else. When did, when did sort of you start to get a buzz for poker that sort of played to your strengths and, and sort of, I guess a little bit explain to people, I didn't sort of explain that you have a background in human behavior and psychology. Yeah. And so that feeds into directly, um, to some of the advantages that you might have found. Absolutely. Um, so I came to poker knowing nothing about poker, but with a PhD in psychology. And I'd studied human decision-making and specifically decision-making under risk and uncertainty and in hot emotional conditions. I looked at stock markets because I didn't know what poker was at the time. Honestly, had I known, poker would have been perfect. I wouldn't have even needed to design the studies, just have people play poker and, and look to see what they do. Um, so I had that background. I knew from a theoretical standpoint, how people go wrong when they make decisions. Unfortunately, psychology is so good at finding the mistakes and not quite as good at figuring out how do you fix them? How do you actually teach the human mind to think probabilistically? How do you teach the human mind the difference between what 5% feels like, what 10% feels like? The fact that 1% is a lot doesn't come naturally to us. It's not something that psychologically, we're equipped to handle because we learn from experience. We learn from doing, we learn from sampling and probabilities aren't evenly distributed and our experiences aren't evenly distributed. And so the way we learn in real life is skewed um, and we overweight our personal experience. And so, you know, we might be very risk-seeking in certain situations just because we got lucky one time or we know someone who got lucky. And we might be very risk-averse because the opposite thing happened. And it's not based on any sort of real rational calculus. It's just based on these one-off experiential events. Poker, though, is a way to bridge that gap because in poker, you're learning from experience. You're actually playing hand after hand after hand, thousands of hands, and you're learning correctly. So you start feeling, you start being able to internalize what those probabilities feel like. I I didn't know that at the time, but I did have the psychological background, the mental framework. Um, I had the language to see what I needed to focus on, what the possible pitfalls in my thinking were, and in other people's thinking. And I knew, because I'd been in a learning environment for a long time, I knew how important it was to have a good coach, to have a good mentor. And so right away, I decided to seek out someone who could help me. Um, And that someone was Eric Seidel, who's considered by many to be the greatest poker player of all time. And, you know, I knew him as the guy with the visor and rounders. So, so I didn't necessarily know uh, his poker greatness, Um, but, but he agreed to help me. And so I was able to leverage, I think, a lot of my background because he knew how to help me apply it. He knew how to teach me the right thought habits so that I wouldn't pick up the wrong habits. It's not like I was a poker player and I wanted to get better. There was nothing to unteach me. He, it's not like he had to fix all of these problems that I already had. He had just a blank slate. He could tell me, no, 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 don't do that or, or do this. But I think that it really did help me um, that 
I had this understanding of human decision-making going into the process. And so I think I came in with a metacognitive awareness um, that a lot of people don't have when they start the game. So he also, early in the book, that's really what gets him excited. And he's a fascinating character in the book. And like, I, I knew about him like as a poker player, but just didn't know about his personality. And he just seems like, a lovely guy who you want to spend time with, who's just intellectually curious. And early in the book, he also mentions Phil Ivey and yeah. like Phil Ivey to everyone in the poker community. I'm literally to my right is a framed cover of uh, a story I did for ESPN, the magazine about Phil Ivey. And, um, you know, he is a scary competitor and explain like, I thought it was an interesting comparison. The way he thought about teaching you was sort yeah. of, an approach that is similar to what Phil Ivey has. Yeah. Um, so Phil Ivey was actually the only name that I knew in the poker world. Somehow his name managed to transcend poker. I knew nothing about poker, but I knew who Phil Ivey was. And um, Eric said something really interesting. Um, he said that not only does Phil Ivey play all of these poker variants, and there was a point in time when he was considered the best at all of them. And each variant is almost like a different language because you're playing the same game, but the, the nuances are different. The stresses are different. You know, the things you have to pay attention to are slightly different. But his sister is someone who speaks multiple languages um, and something like, I don't remember how many, but like 12 languages or something like that. Um, and so he thought, you know, how interesting that these siblings who are both so successful in very different ways share this thing, which seems to be a linguistic ability, an ability to pick up the way that different people communicate. And Eric really liked that I actually speak multiple languages, that I come from a multilingual background. I was born in Russia. Russian was my first language. Um, then I learned English when I came to the U.S. I picked up French when I was a little kid, then Spanish, then Italian. You know, I, I ended up learning a lot of languages as I grew up. And he said, that's really interesting. And I think it's going to be very useful because if that sort of brain mentality, brain ability, whatever it is... Um, if, if we take the Ivies as kind of one, one case or two, if you, if you think about both siblings, then perhaps there's something to that. Maybe you'll actually be able to pick up this new language of poker. So why do you think Eric decided to do it? I think he decided to do it for, for a few reasons. One, he loves poker. Like he is passionate about the game. For him, you know, it, it is a, it's true love. <laughs> you know, he and he wants to spread that love with the world. And so I think because I came from the outside, because I was a writer with a journalistic background whose fan base wasn't poker players. I don't think any poker player knew who I was, who actually, you know, came from a very different world. Um, he saw me as a way to potentially grow the game, as someone who could if I could, if he could get me to love poker too, then I could share that with a much wider audience. And to him, I think that was a valuable opportunity. And I think the other thing was that he really liked the challenge. He thought, wow, can I teach this person with just a psychology background to think well enough to, to play well? Um, and I think to him, that was a really interesting test of philosophy because so many players these days are very mathematical. You know, it's all about solvers and models and statistics. And he thought, well, can you still do well with 
a slightly different approach. Um, and if he could train me to, to be a good player, um, that would say something. So the book is incredibly funny and charming. And like I said, it's sort of, it takes very complicated concepts that you're clearly adept at and it translates them. So for, for more of a mainstream audience, at what point, and like there's moments in there where it feels almost like slapstick and like when you're <laughs> interviewing Eric in the park and like trying to walk and carry your microphone, carry your recorder and like take notes and do all these things. At the that same was time. slapstick. Someone yeah. should have, someone should have filmed us. That yeah. would have been a great comedy duo. It was <laughs> super it was funny. For people who don't know, Eric is um, six and a half feet tall. I'm not. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> right away, you know, when you have when you have two people walking next to each other who have such a height disparity, it's very amusing. But Eric is also a very fast walker. And I'm someone who likes to take notes both on a tape recorder and by hand when I'm doing interviews. So it made for some very interesting moments. <laughs> it was it was and like it reads funny. It reads very funny. But like at some point you start to understand the the art of war elements as you mm -hmm. sort of talk about in the book um and it you transition from sort of being someone who is self-deprecating and like learning about the game to becoming much more confident about your abilities so talk about explain i hate i hate when people say talk about like like can you explain what that transition was like and sort of the different steps that were needed from a decision making point of view to become more confident? I think it's something I'm still working on. You know, I don't think that that's something that that ever ends um, because it's something that I, that I really needed help um, in doing. Um, and, you know, it's something I, I'm still working on in writing and writing is something I've, I've done for m most of my professional career. So I think it's always a work in process. Um, that said, I will answer your question. I'm not trying to. I'm not trying to. I'm not trying to deflect it. Um, so, um, as I went along the process, I took notes the entire time. I wrote every day because I wanted it to be authentic. I didn't want to forget what I was actually feeling and experiencing at every step along the way because it's so easy to think you'll remember and to not take notes, and then you put your present self. You kind of. Try, project yourself backwards um, and you end up forgetting what it really felt like or what you were really thinking. So the book is pretty true to that in the sense that I took notes that I was actually taking at the time. Um, and my confidence progression really mirrors what was happening. Um, and I tried to, I tried to be very deliberate about that um, because you don't want to read a book about someone claiming to be a novice, but from the beginning it, it reads like, you know, you're not a novice. I have no idea what you're talking about. Um, and it was something that was very gradual and that I at first wasn't even aware of. I didn't know I lacked confidence, to be perfectly honest. I mean, I knew that I didn't know what I was doing, but that's a little bit different. You know, you can be, you can be a total amateur, but still think, okay, I can do this. It'll be, it'll be fine. Um, pretty early on, I realized this was really hard, that it was much more difficult than I ever imagined. And I also started noticing, um, because I think we, we should caveat here because it's important in answering your question, um, that I'm female and that 97% of poker players are male. Um, it's a very, very male dominated world. And so this is important because I realized that 
a lot of my lack of confidence kind of came from gender dynamics that I didn't realize I had internalized over time, but that I would kind of defer to people and say, oh, I guess you know better. I'm just going to fold my cards, right? I guess you're really strong. (laughs) I'll, I'll fold. I don't want to get in the way. That I would do things like when I had really good cards, I was, wasn't raising nearly aggressively enough. I wasn't winning enough money because I didn't want people to think of me as, you know, that aggressive bitch who, uh, who always triple barrels and, and does all of this. I wanted them to like me. I wanted to, to be nice. That's not, that's not a great motivation when you're trying to win at a game. Um, you can be nice and still play aggressively, right? <laughs> those are two different things. When I started realizing those, um, that, those were things I needed to work on. That was the first step toward trying to kind of overcome them and and build a little bit more confidence in what I was doing. But that confidence didn't come until I had something to back it up. So it came with knowledge. It came with practice. It came with time and just experience and sitting at table after table after table and playing in tournament after tournament, playing hand after hand after hand. And playing it out and then talking through what I was doing so that I could figure out, okay, you know, how are my decisions? Am I starting to think better? Am I starting to make better decisions? Um, And it really helped that at some point I started winning. Um, I think that that's essential. I mean, it's so hard to have confidence um, if your results are shit, (laughs) you know? (laughs) I don't know. Listen, it hasn't stopped anybody I work with. (laughs) Um, so, but, but I don't, and I don't want to give it away, but like, it's known that you ended up becoming an incredibly successful professional poker player. Explain how well you've done, give people the context. Like you sort of have to talk about the money because money is how you judge success in poker. So give people some background on that. Sure. So, um, I, the first time I sat down at a real table in a real casino, Um, like my first real poker tournament was January, 2017. And I ended up spending multiple months in Vegas playing all the time until I started actually winning those daily tournaments. Um, And then Eric wanted to make sure, and I think this is actually a really important point for all gamblers um, that I played within my bankroll so that I never played higher than I could afford to lose. And then I built up my bankroll organically. So I started at very small stakes. The tournaments that I played at at the beginning were, you know, 35, 45, $55 tournaments. Then I moved up to, you know, $120 tournaments after I was doing well at those. Then after I was consistently doing well at those, I moved up to $1,000 tournaments. And that's kind of how I built my way up. And I, you know, I won my first, I won my first tournament at Planet Hollywood. (laughs) It was a Planet Hollywood daily tournament. I was very proud of myself. Um, I won almost a thousand dollars. It was, it was huge. It was life-changing. It was life-affirming. And then, you know, I, I pushed on. I, I did the grind. (laughs) I grinded the poker circuit and I started playing more. I started studying much harder, studying or playing every single day, seven days a week, um, eight, nine hours a day, just really taking it seriously. At this point, I was doing this full time because for the book, I hadn't gone full time poker pro or anything like that, but I really wanted to commit myself to this. And I started as I analyzed things, I would figure out what leaks I had, what things I needed to work on. I eventually got a mental game coach as well, someone who could help me on kind of the mental elements, just where Eric was helping me with the strategy. Um, I started 
getting better, getting some second place finishes, um, placing in some international events. Um, and then the pivotal moment came a year after I sat down at my first tournament, almost to the day, um, when I played in the Poker Stars Caribbean Adventure, the PCA National. And somehow, miraculously, this was a four-day tournament. Um, a lot of people played, um, and I won. And I ended up you know, the final table was stacked with really famous players and it was surreal. I couldn't sleep, you know, I, I couldn't eat, I couldn't do anything. Um, but that just, I think that changed the entire trajectory of my poker career because there's a big difference between first place and second place. Um, not just financially, although financially, but the media doesn't care about second place. You know, no one cares about second place. People care about the winner. It's not, it's not a story if it's second place, right? <laughs> it doesn't matter if it's poker or sports or, or, or whatever it is. Um, and so the fact that I won actually changed a lot of things. First, of course, the confidence. I just took down a major international title. Secondly, I got a formal sponsorship from Poker Stars. So I joined Team Pro, which was huge. It, mean, it meant that I could I signed a contract to play full-time for a year. Um, so I signed on to kind of do this and I knew I'd be able to travel all over the world. You know, I ended up going everywhere, Macau, Monte Carlo, um, just all over the map. I hate Macau, by the way. <laughs> um, and, and I also, it was really important to me to prove to myself that I could do this again, that it wasn't like a one-hit wonder, um, that it wasn't like, okay, guys, I did it. Now I'm out of here. Um, and so I ended up, you know, really working even harder in a way after I won. Um, and I think it paid off. Um, I, when I went to Macau, I ended up um, final tabling two big events in one week, coming in second in one of them. I don't remember what I came in in the other fifth or something. See if it's not first or second. You right. don't. Re you don't e even remember. Even the player doesn't remember. <laughs> I don't remember. <laughs> um, and um, in the course of two years, um, I made over three hundred thousand um, dollars from playing poker. That is astonishing, <laughs> and that's not an insignificant sum of money. No, I no. That, by the way. We should we should note for people who are listening to this being like I should become a poker player. That's not actually my profit. That was like that was net, not a. That was gross, right. not net. <laughs> there right. we go. That was gross. It's not not like net. you're walking around with so, three hundred grand in your pocket exa right now. Exactly, exactly. There are expenses. There are taxes. There are lots of things that happen with that. There are lots of tournaments that I played that I didn't cash that aren't on there. Um, but but still, that's pretty that's pretty cool for never having played before. No, I would say that there's a lot of people who would love to say, hey, I've won 300 grand playing poker two years after I started playing poker. Yeah. What, um, how would you describe yourself as a player? I would like to think that I've picked up some things from, from my mentor that I'm, and I, and I actually think I have. I'm very lucky that not only was I coached by Eric Seidel, but he introduced me to his friends and his friends are some of the best players and people in the world. They're amazing. So someone else I ended up working with a lot was Phil Galfond, um, who's a brilliant player um, and brilliant human being. And something that both Eric and Phil share is their emotional equilibrium. They are two of the calmest players I know. I have never, and obviously everyone tilts. Um, and for people who don't know the term, that means just getting emotional in your decision-making. It's a great word though. You should learn it and you should use it in your everyday vocabulary. But I've never seen Phil tilt. I've never seen Eric tilt. Like I said, I know they do. 
because everyone does, but they're just so even keeled. I mean, Phil was just doing something called the Galfon Challenge, where he challenged anyone in the world to heads up PLO. Um, and he started off his first challenge. He was down almost one million euros. So that's over a million dollars. Um, and most people would have quit. And Phil took a week off the challenge and said, you know what? I still think I'm a favorite. I think I have an edge. I want to keep going. And he ended up winning. So he didn't only recoup that million euros, but he ended up with a profit. And how many people can do that? How many people in the face of that loss can actually stay calm, take time to rationally reflect and say, I'll keep playing and play well, and then play well enough to come back from that. And it's one of the best sports comeback stories ever. And the reason I'm saying this is I think that that approach, I would like to think that the approach that Phil and Eric espouse in terms of kind of that emotional center, um, that it rubbed off on me, that it's something that I bring to the game. So I think, and I think it's easier for me because I'm female, to be perfectly honest. I don't have the testosterone swings. I don't have, you know, I don't have the, as much ego in the game as a lot of male poker players do. Um, and so I think that that actually is a characteristic of how, how I play. Um, and it's also something, it's a mentality that Eric taught me. Very early on, I tried to tell him a bad beat story and he just yelled at me. <laughs> and he said... You, no, I don't want to hear this. Um, this is terrible. Do not tell me this. And I never want you to tell me a bad beat story ever. You're not allowed to. In fact, I don't ever want to hear how a hand ended. I don't care. I just care about the decision process. Do you have a question about how you played the hand? Is there anything interesting in what you did, in what you could control, in the elements of the decision process? Because that's the crucial thing, not the outcome. You have to divorce yourself from the outcome. And that's such a powerful mental frame. That's such a powerful mental shift. I think that's what allows you to not tilt um, and to kind of deal with these swings with emotional equilibrium. And so I think that that at the end of the day is kind of the, the central tenet to how I try to play poker. And yes, this doesn't kind of answer the question of strategy. You know, am I more aggressive player? Am I, you know, am I a tighter player? Um, and the answer to that is it depends. Um, the other thing that Eric taught me is to constantly adjust. Don't be one kind of player. Don't be someone who's known as a maniac. Don't be someone who's known as a nit. Be someone who is capable of doing both and everything in between because you are so observant and so in tune with the table that you're able to just completely switch gears depending on your opponents. Um, I'm not there, but that's what I aspire to do. So you touched on a couple of things there that I think are really fascinating about the process, right? And and in sports betting as a comp, like people will always talk about how I got the right number, I was on the right side, it was, you know, it was a bad beat or whatever it was, not in a way that sort of makes them feel badly. They're just like, that's the way the games go. Mm -hmm. And if I got to the right decision making process, uh, I'm comfortable with how the outcome is, what the outcome is, good or bad. Um, you talked a lot about sort of disaster versus triumph mm -hmm. in sort of as a concept. Explain what that means, because I think almost anybody who's in betting could understand it once they hear about it. Um, this is originally a concept that I heard from another great of poker, Dan Harrington, um, who wrote a series of books that a lot of people have read when they start playing poker, Harrington on Hold'em. And 
he taught me something that I think everyone needs to know. And that's, you will never learn how to play good poker if you get lucky. You have to get unlucky. And at first I was like, what do you mean? I don't want to get lucky. I want to win. (laughs) And what he meant was when you fail, when when you're met with disaster, you're forced to go back and to examine what you did, to examine your thought process, to figure out how did I get here? You know, what were the variables I was looking at? Was my decision correct? Was my process correct? Or was it flawed? And if it was flawed, well, then I need to learn how to improve it. And if it was right, if my process was actually right, okay, then how do I dismiss this bad result and keep going? And if you're lucky, you never do that. It's so easy when you're lucky to say, yep, I played really well. Yeah, I made no mistakes. Um, Listen, a very fascinating thing is to look at exit interviews of people who've won tournaments and listen to how many great players will say at the end and some not great players, oh, I played, I was just really on, I played really well. Um, I didn't make any mistakes. I played a very solid game. And try to find the number of times that people say, you know, I made a lot of mistakes and I actually lucked out here, here, and here. These are the moments I should have busted the tournament. And these are the things I'd like to re-examine, but I got really lucky. So here I am. No one's, no one really does that. You don't have an incentive to examine your process to find your mistakes. If you lucked out, if you keep lucking out, you just think it's you, you think you're good. And so you don't learn. It doesn't teach you anything. And so, yeah, maybe you actually made pretty good decisions, which is great, but maybe you didn't and you're not going to know and you're not going to learn to tell the difference and you're not going to learn the discipline to go back and examine your thought process. That's what you learn from disaster, not from triumph. So the, the book ends, you write your last word, you turn it in. How often do you still play poker? How often do you think about poker? Did you end up liking poker? <laughs> I absolutely fell in love with the game. And I think that um, in large part, that's I have Eric to thank. He taught me to see the beauty in it. He taught me how much it can teach me. And when I handed in the book, I had no plans to stop playing. It's one of these things where I love writing. I'm a writer. I'm always going to be a writer. Um, but I also started loving poker and it was still teaching me so much. I was learning a lot about myself. I was becoming better. I was becoming a better decision maker. It was still giving to me and I was still enjoying it. And so I thought, well, why can't I do both? Um, And I think that you absolutely can, you know, you can write from anywhere in the world. Um, And so I had plans to keep playing um, and my book is out June 23rd, which was supposed to be the middle of the World Series of Poker. So it was slotted to come out in the middle of this big event that I was going to be playing. um, And then I was going to play the main event. um, And we were going to do all of these things in Las Vegas around the book launch. But unfortunately, you never know what cards are coming. And you can make the best decision you you can, but it's incomplete information and you have no idea what's coming next. Um, No one could have predicted that, you know, we'd have COVID and that it would unravel the way that it did um, and that live poker would be dead. Um, So um, I was actually on my way um, to play in LAPC, which is one of the biggest world poker tour events of the year. 
um, in late February. Um, I was in New Orleans um, the week of Mardi Gras, not for Mardi Gras. I was already actually a little bit scared of COVID. Um, and so I stayed mostly in my hotel room. Um, I was there for um, to get an award for my writing. And I was supposed to fly from New Orleans straight to LA. And the first cases started popping up in LA. Um, and my sister is a doctor and she called me and she said, do not go to a casino right now. And I changed my tickets and I turned around and um, came back to New York. And I think that was a very smart decision. And so I ended up not playing my last, what would have been my last live tournament. Um, so everything changed and the world changed and my plans changed for poker because I'm a live player. Um, you know, that that's what I do. And um so now we'll see, you know, we'll see when live poker comes back. I'll certainly not feel comfortable playing in 2020. Um, I think you have to be insane to go into a casino right now. Um, but maybe 2021. And in the meantime, um, you know, I will keep writing and playing online. I actually made plans to go to New Jersey um, in uh, July to play the World Series online. So um, I'll be doing that. And um that should be fun. So we'll, I'm doing my best to adjust, right? I don't, I'm not an online player, but I'm trying to do my best to learn the best strategies for playing online so that I can continue to do it. Well, listen, I hope you get to play live again. I hope you get to play live again for all of us. Cause that'll be good news for everybody that, that <laughs> we've gotten to a place where we can be comfortable being next to somebody, but morally, more and more importantly, I just hope people read the book cause it's fantastic. And, uh, really amazing job just sort of capturing so much cool information into into really thoughtful prose so um nice work thanks for coming on the favorites thank you so much for having me it's been a pleasure thank you to maria konnikova the biggest bluff is out now go get it download the podcast from apple from spotify wherever you get your podcast rate review subscribe until next time love you